This morning I'm going to be uh, preaching from uh, Luke 11, 37 um, to 44, but I'm going to read all the way down to uh, verse 54. So Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms the things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Those, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens, and loads hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, and they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees <clears throat> began to press him hard and to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something that he might say. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal, its eternal truths upon our hearts. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. For in your word, yes, we see promises. Yes, we see comfort. Yes, we find life and love from you. But Lord, in your word, we also see warnings dire warnings, warnings of impending judgment. And Lord, we know that it is only those who will receive the promises, only those who, who heed the warnings and turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ 
who receive all of the promises and all of the goodness of your word. So Lord, I pray that in the power of your spirit this morning, that you would help us to hear with spiritual ears. Lord, unstop our ears, soften our hearts for what you would say to us by your spirit this morning. Help us, Lord, help us all to heed the warning. And help us, Lord, to hide our lives in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be renewed from the inside out, that your name would be glorified through us, that we who were once rebels would become evident to to all as worshipers of the one true God. In whose name we pray. Amen. Kids, I'm sure that you have been warned by your parents not to play on the ice. Unless your parents say it's okay, and especially without knowing how thick the ice is. I've seen a number of of reports just in the past few days of children falling through ice. Some of them are rescued, but some of them aren't. My parents warned me about the dangers of thin ice. When I was in Cub Scouts, I learned about the dangers of thin ice. Maybe you've you've heard the poem. I think it's been adapted, adapted a little bit. Three inches, stay away. Four inches, two can play. Five inches, small groups. Six inches, okay. All of those warnings went out the window when, as a a young person, a friend of I and I were at a popular sledding hill in Ottawa. The the hill was very steep and, and led down onto the Rideau River. And this particular evening, when we're out there, the middle of the river was still open. The ice had not closed over the river altogether. And so we foolishly dared each other to go out on the ice. One of us would take a step and then dare the other to take a step. And we got closer and closer and closer to the open water in front of us. Less than 20 feet away. And my friend and I were we're pretty close to each other, so if one of us broke through the ice, we both would have broken through and there would have been nobody there to rescue us. We both would have drowned. Now, I don't know which one of us decided to turn around and head back to shore first, but we both moved back as quickly as we dared. And I was so relieved to be back on land. And then a number of years ago, in my first year as pastor, here at this church, I wanted to take the youth group um, out ice skating on Rose Valley Pond. There's really nothing quite like skating on a natural body of water. Well, ice. Now it was a little bit later in the winter, and, and we just had a we we just but we just had a cold snap, and so I figured it'd be safe. And thankfully, I remembered the warnings from my youth, and I remembered my own foolishness as a youth. So by this point, I was older and and I was wiser. So I I took the warnings into consideration. 
Just to be sure, I, I called the fire station across the, the road from Rose Valley Pond and to ask them whether the ice was safe. They used to, in the wintertime, they used to clear off the ice and even put hockey nets out there for, the, for people to, to play. But when I called, they told me that they hadn't been out there for, for a while, so, so they weren't sure whether it was safe or not. So I decided I'd, I'd check myself. And so I took my axe and I, I, I parked and I went, I was going to go out on the ice in, in order to check the depth. And then I realized the foolishness of that decision. If I was to find out that the ice was too thin, it would be probably too late. So I decided to come back later on with help. And so there was a, a young guy from the church that I, I tied a rope around my waist and I went out onto the ice with my axe and asked him to hold the rope on the shore. Well, I chopped and I chopped with my axe out there on in the middle of the ice. And at what when I got close to what must have been six inches, I hit water. And just as I did, I heard a loud crack. Now, if you have ever been out on the ice, you know what that crack sounds like. It started at the far side of the pond and came directly towards where I was. I shuffled off that ice as quickly as I possibly could. I didn't need another warning. Needless to say, we, we didn't go ice skating that night. I envisaged the headlines, pastor drowns entire youth group. But all of the warnings about ice thickness and even my past experience on the Rideau River did not compare to the warning of the sound of the ice cracking under my feet. No one will ever have to warn me again. Some people, present company included, don't listen to warnings very well. Or they don't think that the warnings apply directly to them. And that puts them on very thin ice. And that was certainly true of the religious leaders in our passage this morning. Having just delivered a stern message about the danger of rejecting him and his message, Jesus now gets even more stern. Now it gets specific. He had been speaking generally so far in terms of, of this generation. In Luke 11, 29 to 32, and the general you and your in verses 11 to 36. And now he speaks directly to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes or the lawyers as they're referred to here. They're all part of the evil generation that Jesus is warning. And so in this passage, Jesus lays down seven rebukes. Six of them are in the form of woes. Three to the Pharisees and three to the lawyers. Several of the, the woes are parallel with Matthew 23, where, where Jesus again pronounces woes on the Pharisees and lawyers. In this passage, we see, we see that the, the Pharisees are, are shallow, legalistic, egotistical, corpses. And the lawyers are oppressive murderers who block the way to heaven. And both groups are marked by hypocrisy. The religion that they practice is merely superficial, and it, was only, it will only result in their damnation and the damnation of all who follow them. 
Well, this week we're going to be looking at the, the warning to the Pharisees. Next week, Lord willing, that of the lawyers. But the warnings that are here actually apply to both groups. And there are all warnings for us as well. These warnings can be crystallized into three instructions. Verses 37 to 41, clean on the inside. Verses 42 to 44, care from the heart. Verses 45 to 52, carry with the word. And we'll see the response when we get to, to verses 33, sorry, 40, 53 and 54. And the question that remains, though, is what will your response be? So first, let's look at the rebuke that Jesus lays down on the Pharisees in verses 37 to 44. And it starts with an altercation over cleanliness not laws and then moves into the three woes. So in verses 37 to 41, the outside is clean, but the inside isn't. Verse 42, the first woe, legalistic giving. And verse 43, the second woe, love position. And then in verses in verse 44, the third woe, leading people astray. We're going to be spending most of our time this morning on this first point. The importance of cleaning the inside of the cup because it really, it really deals with the, the whole issue. It deals with the heart of the problem with these Pharisees. And sad to say that it deals quite often with the heart problem in us as well. So the passage starts out with, in response to Jesus' teaching, a Pharisee invites Jesus home for lunch. It's going to become clear that this is not a private luncheon. There are other religious leaders present there as well. And Jesus reclines at the table. A common posture at meals in that culture, leaning on cushions around a low table as they eat the food. Now Luke regularly describes meal, uh, events that take place during mealtimes in his gospel account. Because, because these meals provide opportunities for conversation. Quite often that the meal itself is actually tangential to what's really going on. These are teaching moments that Jesus has with the people with whom he is dining. They provide opportunities for conversation and it, when it comes to the Pharisees, opportunities for confrontation. Opportunities for them to confront Jesus and opportunities for Jesus to return with the truth. Now, I doubt that dining with Pharisees would be good for the digestion. But Jesus has an important lesson that he wants to teach here. I'm sure Jesus knew many others that he could have enjoyed more pleasant company with over lunch. But Jesus' food was to do the will of God. And it'd be ours as well. The Pharisee was astonished, we're told, to see that Jesus did not wash before eating. Now, there's nothing wrong with washing your hands before dinner. We, we teach our kids to wash their hands before dinner. It's, it's just good hygiene. But this isn't about hygiene. For the Pharisees, it's about ceremonial purity. Before eating anything, religious Jews would pour water over their hands in order to wash off the defilement from contact, from contact with the sinful world. Although the practice does have roots in the Old Testament, particularly in some of the, the cleanliness laws from Leviticus, the Mishnah, which was the rule of law for the Pharisees, goes far beyond the Word of God. 
that the, the Mishnah goes into great detail about the amount of water, the cup used, and the washing technique. Here's a quote from the Mishnah. If he poured the first water over his hands as far as the joint and poured the second water over the hands beyond the joint and the latter flowed back onto the hands, the hands are clean. If he poured the first and the second water over the hands beyond the joint and they flowed back onto the hands, they remain unclean. If he poured the first water over one of his hands and then changed his mind and poured the second water onto his hands and then, then they are, un, are unclean. If he poured the first water over his hands and then changed his mind and poured the second water over his hands, then his one hand becomes clean. If he poured water over one of his hands and rubbed it on the other, it remains unclean. If he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it is clean. Water may be poured over the hands of four or five persons, each hand being held to the side of the other, being one above the other, provided the hands are held loosely so the water flows between them. You get the point. There are pages of this stuff. And it binds people to unbiblical laws. Jesus will have none of it. In fact, why do you think Jesus didn't wash his hands in the first place? It was intentional. He was bringing the issue, issue to a head. Jesus had created a teaching moment. Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Jesus' focus was on the inside, on the heart. And Jesus' criticism here covers all unbiblical rules. The cleanliness of things outside the person are a great concern to the Pharisees, while the uncleanness inside the person is ignored. And so Jesus charges them with hypocrisy. The Pharisees and the precious rules concern themselves only with what is outside. They can perform all the external duties, but be unchanged on the inside. Their religion is only skin deep. Friends, it's not about appearances. It's about the heart. That's what counts. But Jesus says that the Pharisees were full of greed and wickedness. You can just imagine the gasp in the room as he says this. These men considered themselves to be paragons of virtue. The people saw them the same way. But Jesus is here lumping them in all together as part of this evil generation. This is a very serious warning. But Jesus isn't being harsh here. He's actually giving them an opportunity. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. He's exposing their sin to their own eyes so that they can see it and turn away from it. But he does have another purpose as well. One that will be very evident when we get to verses 53 and 54. Now in verse 40, Jesus says, You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? The Pharisees didn't just see themselves as paragons of virtue. They also saw themselves as paragons of wisdom. Yet Jesus calls them fools. Again, Jesus is not being harsh here. He isn't being insulting. He's exposing the reality of the situation. Now, we think of fools as those who are ignorant or those who lack common sense. Now, that is true here too, but they are foolish in the more narrow sense, in the biblical sense. The Bible describes a fool as one who denies God. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, 
There is no God. It's not about what you say with your lips. It's about what you say with your heart. Now, the Pharisees never would have even thought to deny God with their lips. The reality of what is taking place in their hearts is a regular, regular and continual denial of God. They profess faith in God, but they were denying God by their actions. And so Jesus asks the rhetorical question, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? God made the outside and he made the inside. Do you really think, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and to us, do you really think that God only cares what is going on on the outside with the externals of your life? Do you really think that God doesn't care about what is taking place in your heart? In Matthew 15, verses 17 to 20, Jesus again addresses the issue of what's on the inside. Let's, let's turn there. Matthew 15. Seventeen to twenty. Do you not see that what it goes, whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach, and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth precedes the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Do you really think, do you really think that God is satisfied with appearances, but ignores the substance? He ignores the fiber of who you really are. Because it's not just about what you do, but who you are. You can't be one thing in public and another in private. Anything less than a changed life from a changed heart is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Well, now in verse 41, Jesus uses an example that reveals the heart. Alms. He says, but, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, the giving of alms refers to, to the giving of those in need. And, and really, what, what you do with your money proves... What's important to you? Jesus will say in Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But giving is, is not just a mere duty. The question is, what is your motivation for giving? Do, do you grumble about having to give? Are you giving the bare minimum or do you give generously? Because again, the giving of alms must come from within. From the heart with, with intentionality and love. The failure to see the needs of others, especially your brothers and sisters in the church, reveals a lack of love for them. And it really ultimately reveals a lack of love for God. Jesus is going to teach this principle often. In Matthew 25, he actually says that, that failing to provide for, for the needs of of your brothers and sisters is actually a failure to provide for him. It says that it's, it reveals that you're not really one of a sheep at all, but rather that you are one of the goats and that you are under condemnation. 
In 1 John 3, 16 and 17, we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and that we also ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Literally, Jesus is saying here in verse 41, but rather give the things that are inside. Give first your heart and affections and will to God, and then your actions will be acceptable to God. Giving from the heart is evidence that the whole person has been given to God. I see much of that in this church. I see people going out of their way to love others because they love God. As I said earlier, my, my family has been abundantly blessed by this church family. I see people eager to help others in the church who are in need. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we didn't, we didn't have our, our special Christmas Eve offering, but, but, but you gave double what you normally give. And you are showing that the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts because you are loving others. Because you love God. You give double. I praise the Lord for you, church. You're doing what Jesus says to do. But more than that, you're being who Jesus said you are to be. You're being who you are, who Jesus said you are to be. You are not making yourselves clean by giving, but you're giving from the heart and so proving that you are clean. By focusing on godly character and love and worship from the heart and the external things, the external things are following naturally like light and heat Produce are produced by fire. But if you do not deal with the inside, like these Pharisees, no matter what you do on the outside, you remain unclean. You are like these Pharisees. You will continue to be full of greed and wickedness. You will be part of the evil generation. If you don't deal with the heart, no matter how much you wash your hands, you will never be clean. Like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play, unable to assuage her guilt after conspiring with her husband to kill King Duncan, with blood on her hands, literally and figuratively rubbing her hands, she says, Come out, damn spot. Out, I command you. One, two, okay, it's, it's time to do it now. Hell is murky, murky. What will my hands never be clean? I have the smell of blood on my hand. All the perfumes of Arabia couldn't make my little hand smell better. Do you have dirty hands because of a dirty heart? Like Pilate in Matthew 27, 24, washing his hands before the crowd, declaring himself innocent of Christ's blood. No amount of water can wash the guilt from his hands, let alone from his heart. I see a parallel here with baptism. Interesting, the word that's translated wash up in verse 38 is actually baptizo, baptizo, which is, which is obviously the word for which we get baptism. 
Now, baptism is, is one of the two ordinances that we have as a church. Being baptized is important. Being baptized is a command. The, the command to be baptized is explicit in Scripture. Because baptism is a picture of our union with Christ in his life and his, or in his death and his burial and his resurrection. However, some are baptized without being born again. They get baptized when they have no real relationship with Jesus Christ. They get baptized as a, an attempt to, to clean the outside of the cup. But the command in Scripture is, is always to repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. The, the two go together. Bapti being baptized without repentance is a useless exercise. It is mere legalism. It is hypocrisy. Now in this church, we, we go through some pretty rigorous discipleship with someone before we'll baptize them. We, we want to be doing everything that we can to ensure that we are not baptizing an unbeliever. But of course, we get it wrong on occasion. I have gotten it wrong thinking that the candidate for baptism was a Christian when he wasn't. It's heartbreaking. He gave me all the right answers. He had all the appearances of a changed life, but he was not a Christian. In fact, he came to me just a few months ago and told me that, it was, that his profession of faith was all a sham. He'd never believed any of it. It was fear of man that it caused him to do this. He was not a Christian. Now, he did say at this moment that he is, is searching, and I, I'm concerned that he's not searching in the right place. But ironically, he was the one who was holding the other end of the rope when I went out on the ice to check the thickness. He could have baptized me in the lake that night. So baptism is an example where, where people sometimes try to be, get cleansed on the outside when they're not clean on the inside. Again, it's a, it's a picture of what has already taken place in the heart of the true believer. But the Lord's Supper is another place where, where it could just be an attempt to cleanse what's outside while remaining filthy inside. Like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a picture of what has already taken place in the heart of a believer. It's a, it's a picture of participation in the body and blood of Christ. But it isn't just a picture for the believer. It is an actual participation in the body and blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. But some come to the table without repentance, without faith. They participate in the Lord's Supper, but they're not participating with Christ. They do it as an outward show, perhaps because they, they don't want people to, to see them letting the, the bread and the cup pass by. Or maybe it's an attempt to quiet a noisy conscience. But it's all cleansing at the outside of the cup. And ironically, those who eat and drink in this manner are actually eating and drinking judgment on themselves. We must instead examine ourselves and only then receive the elements. But it's not just baptism and the Lord's Supper. Almost any religious exercise can be done as an attempt to cleanse the outside of the cup. Any church service, any good deed can be merely external. Any act of obedience can be merely an act. Be careful to examine your heart. 
Why you do what you do is even more important than what you do. If you're doing good just to to polish up the outside, you are just like the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. It wasn't just the Pharisees who were really good at, at keeping up appearances. People could come to church for an hour and a half and, and, and put on a good show. They could pretend that everything is fine. They could be squeaky clean on the outside, but inside be full of filthiness. People can come to church on Sunday after spending Saturday evening committing adultery on the internet. They can give offerings to the church while cheating on their taxes. People can be friendly to your face and gossip behind your back. Families can smile and play nice when they come to church, but they've had a a huge argument in the car on the way to church. And under the circumstances, when, when we can't fellowship as freely as we normally would, it is easier to keep up appearances because you don't have to keep them up for as long or as often. What would your family say about your religion? What would God say? Is it mere hypocrisy? Or does it come from a regenerated heart that loves God and loves others? With the time that we have left, let's look at the three woes that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees. And again, these are all applications of what we've just seen. Woe one. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice from the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The word that is translated woe is a statement of of intense hardship or distress. It refers to coming disaster or horror. It is a warning of coming judgment. Now the word woe is onomatopoeic. It is a word that, that sounds out what it is. It's the sound that would come out of the mouth of a greeting person. Why? The Pharisees would have known full well what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is pronouncing God's judgment on them. But why? Why is he pronouncing judgment? Tithing is a biblical command. Leviticus 27.30, for example, commands tithing. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It's there in many passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But the problem with the Pharisees is that their religion was merely, again, external. And their religion went far beyond the biblical command. They they were very diligent to get their tithes right. They would actually measure one-tenth of the stalks of the herbs in their garden to give them. You can just picture them there with a measuring stick. Again, the the Pharisees appealed to the Mishnah as though it was Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible is this kind of wooden legalism commanded. They were straining at a gnat to swallow a camel. Tithing was meant to be motivated by love as a delightful privilege, not a bare duty. The Pharisees neglected what was clearly commanded in the scripture, justice and love. And so the condemnation lay not in the tithing of herbs, but in their zeal for mere externals. They neglected the justice 
and love of God. They paid tithes, but they didn't love God. Now, these things are fundamental to true and living faith. Justice and love of God, and elsewhere Jesus includes mercy. The Pharisees should have focused on the bigger rules without neglecting the smaller ones. Tithing ought to have been done without failing to practice justice, mercy, and love. In fact, tithing should come from a heart of mercy and justice and love for God and others. They should have had done the former from a heart grounded in the latter. As I mentioned earlier, this is a, a very generous church. I have no idea who gives or how much anyone gives, but last month, the month of December, was one of the biggest months of giving that has ever taken place, at least in the time, the 10 years that I've been here. And we haven't gathered as we normally gather for, for corporate worship. Most of us have been gathering in, in small groups. We're not actually even take, have not even been taking up an offering, but the, the giving has been one of the, the most generous months in, the, in the, my knowledge, the history of this church. This is a very generous church, and it's, it's also a very loving church. But which takes precedence? The giving or the love? True that sometimes giving to someone or serving someone can help you grow in love. But the kind of giving that God ultimately wants is giving and service that is motivated by love. And again, we see the principle that Jesus spoke of in verse 41. Deal with the inside and what's on the outside will follow naturally. Woe to, verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees loved the best seats in the synagogues. Now synagogues were, were rectangular rooms, most of them around the size of, of this room, with, with rows of seats that went all the way around the perimeter of the room. And the best seats would have been those that were closest to the Ark of the Law, the, the ornate cabinet that contained the Torah scrolls that were used in public worship. And this, this, this Ark of the Law symbolized the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so it would have been considered, being near the where the Ark was, would have been considered the, the holiest place in the synagogue. The best seats would have been near the ark, and the, the, these seats would have faced the rest of the congregation. And the, so the Pharisees wanted to be there, and they wanted to be seen to be there. But isn't it ironic that they wanted to be physically close to the law of God when their hearts were so far from God and far from His law? Likewise, isn't it ironic they wanted to be seen by the people, but they didn't really care about the people? Now, we only have a, a few people here this morning while we record the service, but back when we were all gathered together, I still don't know why people don't sit in the front row. I think it's the best seat. But people, they don't sit in the front row. They, they sit towards the back. And I don't think it's just because we're all a bunch of back row Baptists. But the Pharisees loved the greetings they received in the marketplaces. Again, they loved to be seen, but not just to be seen, they loved to be honored. 
They loved to be honored. They expected elaborate salutations. They, they wanted to be venerated as the ones in authority, as the holy ones, as the wise ones. They loved the position, but they didn't love the people. They cared what people thought, but they didn't care for people. And seeking to honor others, they were actually motivated by pride. And it's essentially the fear of man. And I miss the days when, when the whole church would gather before and after the service. Greeting their friends and welcoming visitors. We love the greetings too, don't we? But not out of feeling a need to be honored by others. At least I hope not. Rather, it's because we love others. We love the greeting because we love the one who's greeting us. And, and we know that they love us too. And so we stick around after the fellowship meal, long after the food was gone. Because we love one another. We love being around one another. And my prayer is that those days will return soon. And I think that when they do, we'll appreciate them that much more. Woe 3, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In the Old Testament ceremonial law, coming into contact with a dead body would, would make you unclean for a week. And those who had done so, those who had come into contact with a dead body, usually uh, due to preparation for a body for, of a body for burial, the person had to wash. Again, there's nothing wrong with washing. There's those health reasons why this is important. But the Pharisees, in striving to be ceremonially clean, made themselves and others morally unclean. As unmarked graves, they would make people unwittingly unclean. They would make people unclean without the people even knowing it. And Jesus is inferring here that the Pharisees are dead. And they are making others unclean through their teaching and example. They were a hindrance, not a help to people's spiritual well-being. The Pharisees saw themselves not only as, as paragons of, of virtue and wisdom, but also as paragons of purity. And the bitter irony is that they led people into spiritual uncleanness, into moral uncleanness. So they condemned themselves and they condemned their followers. Jesus said similarly in Matthew 23, 27, and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Religious hypocrites put on a holy face, but are hiding what they really are. Again, it's, it's easier under the present circumstances to hide. That's one of the reasons why our care groups are so important. Because they give you opportunity to spend time in fellowship with others in the church. Friends, if you are struggling with sin, talk to someone. Talk to someone about it. Please, for your own good, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God, Talk to someone. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to your spouse. Talk to a trusted, godly friend. Others are following your example. You might be thinking, well, 
I'm not a teacher in the church. You are a teacher in the church. Your family is seeing the way you behave. They're seeing what you present to others, and they're seeing what you are like at home. But it's not just your family. Others are listening to what you say, and, and perhaps even more dangerous, they're watching what you do. Rest assured, your sin will be exposed. Certainly on the day of judgment, but often much sooner than that, the enemy loves to wait and expose sin when it can do the most damage. So deal with it now. Deal with it now. Choosing to confess your sin out of the conviction of the Holy Spirit is very different from getting caught. Is your religion mere hypocrisy? Are you what you are behind closed doors? The same as what you are when you are in front of other people. Have you heeded Jesus' warning? Or are you on thin ice? And are you leading others out onto thin ice? Or are you merely a religious hypocrite? If you break through the ice, who is holding the other end of the rope? Do you even have a rope? The Pharisees thought they did, but they would drown in the frigid waters of their own sin. Now we all forget to heed the warning sometimes. We all occasionally hear the cracks in the ice, and we all have been sometimes break through the ice. But it is only those for whom Jesus is holding the rope. It is only they who will be rescued. It is only they who are regenerated, who have new hearts, who are trusting in Jesus Christ, not in their own righteousness. They are, they are clearly aware of their own unrighteousness, but they are turning to Christ in repentance and faith, unlike these Pharisees. who thought they were righteous, but weren't. Rather, the one who knows that he's unrighteous and knows that God himself is righteous. The one who, as John Newton said, I know two things. I am a great sinner and I have a great Savior. It is only that person who is genuinely saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great grace. Lord, we praise you for the warnings that we see here in this passage. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not just to, to think, well, those are for the, the, how bad those Pharisees are. Lord, help us, I pray, to see our own sin. Lord, help us to repent of our own sin. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of the means of grace that you give us in your word and prayer and fellowship. Lord, confessing our sins to one another that we may be healed. Help us, I pray, Lord, to be transformed, to be cleansed from the inside out so that you would get the glory that you deserve that your church would be built, that sinners would come to faith. And Lord, that your name would be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name.